Hello, and welcome to the Recovery Matters podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. Philip. Hello, Sandy. Do you remember one of our earlier podcasts where I shared a 27-year resentment with you? Um, kind of. So you had a sponsor in your early recovery that gave you a lot of wisdom, and he said that you had no business being in a relationship your first year after your marriage broke up. And I had no business being in a relationship my first year in recovery. And today, I absolutely believe that is wise, sage advice. <laughs> we but, didn't think so at the time, did we? No. Well, actually, I thought it was way it was sage advice, but I wasn't going to take well, it. <laughs> I still had some terminal uniqueness left yeah. to me. And so I thought... There is no way I'm going to let him be right about this. And so sometimes I've attributed the longevity of our relationship to this resentment that I'm going to stay <laughs> married to you till one of us is buried because I want to win. Mm-hmm. I want to win. And that person is our special guest today. <laughs> Hi, Rick. Hello, Sandy. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> I'm still hanging on. You keep that resentment as long as it <laughs> yep. helps you stay married. And I'm still happy to share the other, the advice, which I think is is uh, definitely valid and true. Um, I do share that with others, but I'm hanging on to that resentment because I'm hanging on to Philip for a while longer anyway. Well, our guest today is Rick, a very special uh, person in my recovery uh, for the last 30-plus years. He was around when I started my recovery journey. Uh, Rick, you have 45 years in recovery? Is that right? Almost 46, yes. Yeah, you don't look that old. I know. (laughs) (laughs) That's what sobriety does for you. It's an extraordinary uh, journey, and I mention you in so many different ways and they've been a powerful uh, piece of um, for me as support in the growth of CCAR and my recovery and uh, every and now I think um, you know well since the pandemic we haven't been able to have the breakfast like we used to but I think we're getting close yeah and I've really appreciated our conversations over the years and so have I yeah and me because Phil is usually better after a conversation with you. And I don't need to know the content of the conversation. I just know he's better to be around. So I appreciate you too. Thank you. Thank you. And I thank you for taking the time to come in and maybe stretch yourself a little bit with this, all this technology and the podcast <laughs> and everything. Uh, but I'm very curious to hear about your recovery story. Um, I've heard it and um, I've heard it said certain ways, but what was it like for you growing up? Where'd you grow up? Uh, we'll start there as far back as you can remember. Sure. Um, I grew up in the ghetto section of Stanford. There's not a ghetto section oh, of Stanford. Oh, there is a ghetto section in Stanford, believe At least there was in 1948. <laughs> and uh, 
I'm the only child of two alcoholic parents. So when I walked out the front door, it was dangerous. It was dangerous. And, uh, you know, I'm a big believer that the mind absorbs the environment. And this was something that kind of I took with me when I went out. Uh, I wasn't safe inside and I wasn't safe outside. It was dangerous. And in that process, I became dangerous. I was dangerous uh, in a way that, uh, because I could not control my emotions. Fear was prevalent. Um, anxiety was everywhere. So, you know, I had to protect myself. And part of that protection was to become very devious. Uh, it also taught me how to be intimidating, which actually worked pretty good when I became a sponsor. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it all started with, you know, if you attack me, you are in grave danger. And that's, that's kind of the way I grew up. And I would hide it for a certain period of time. And for something inside me, there is an invisible line where... If you cross that line, either you ridicule me or you threaten me or something of that nature uh, or frighten me, I lose all conscience. And uh, I've done some things in my youth that probably would have put me into prison had I been caught. Mm -hmm. But I was very good at not getting caught. Um, so this sounds like you're a fighter. You could fight? Yes. Were you more of a boxer? No, uh, no. I, I was a, a street fighter. Yeah. I was Whatever a street fighter. First day in school, I walked into kindergarten at race school, Stanford. I got beat up. Why? Because that's what they did with the first kid, <laughs> first day in school. Wow. Second day in school, <clears throat> I brought a bat. Whoa. I never got beat up again. Wow. Okay. I mean, that's just the type of person no, that's a I was. Powerful example. So I'm I'm not that person anymore. No. But the the strange thing is, I know the invisible line is still there. Mm -hmm. So I have to be very careful that uh, I don't put myself in a position because when I drank, the line got closer and closer and closer. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, once you see someone who's disconnected from their conscience. Um, you want to avoid that person. So there is a part of you that I think even you alluded to it about um, helping people in recovery, uh, being a little intimidating. It's almost people can sense you have that line. Do you sense that? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That that's just who I am. Yeah. The great thing is though, when I uh, was about eleven or twelve years old. My father went into the program, mm -hmm. and he took my mother, kicking and screaming, into the program. So when I was in my early teen years, I was the beneficiary of a lot of amends. Mm -hmm. And because attitudes are contagious, and once you uh, sober somebody up, inevitably their attitude improves, I was able to uh, 
be blessed by their new attitudes, their sober recovering attitudes. Mm -hmm. And it was an interesting time. I didn't exactly know what was going on, but I knew that something had changed. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that they had had their own spiritual experience and this would change me to a certain degree. However, because I had spent 12 years under the tutelage of darkness, and drinking, mm. um, those seeds were planted very deep. And even though my protestations of, I'll never drink like they did, mm. once I picked up the first drink, um, good intentions are spit on <laughs> by addiction. Mm -hmm. So I had to, uh, you know, begin my own battle. When was the first drink? Do you remember it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember it vividly. I was down at Tony's Drive-In at Shippan Point in Stamford. And in Tony's Drive-In, the guy's son who owned the place was a 25-year-old kid, and he had an apartment above the, the hot dog stand. There was a hot dog stand. And uh, hmm. he invited a bunch of us kids who were hanging around, come on up. And I don't know what his motive was, but we ended up having, he had... Uh, I don't know, some type of liquor. And it wasn't whiskey, but it was Southern Comfort, I think. Oh, uh. uh, yeah. And uh, so he gave us all a little bit of Southern Comfort. And I drank it, and no big deal. Went home. My mother smelled it. She almost hit the roof. Wow. But uh, they, my parents never, never said anything about this. And I think they maybe felt guilty or hypocritical to say, oh, you shouldn't drink after they're, you know horrific lifestyles but uh you know that was it that was it second drink i have no idea yeah. but all i knew was that once i drank um it allowed me to live in the delusions easier mm -hmm. the delusions that i was okay the delusions that i was tough uh, it allowed me to deny the anxiety of I'm not good enough mm -hmm. or some of the, uh, you know, issues that I got into, you know, because we were very, very poor. Yeah. What and did your mom and dad do? My father, when he finally sobered up, he, my father was kind of a gutter drunk. He bounced from one place to the other. And uh, I have memories of having to go and pull him out of the bars when I was seven or eight years old. You did? Yeah, and help him stagger home. And my mother would, uh, she was more of a stay-at-home drunk. And, uh, but I have horror, horror memories of coming home and my mother being dead drunk, naked on the floor. And, uh, you know, these were things which I rarely talk about and even now hate to think about but that was my life that was my life so you know when i f found uh alcohol mm -hmm. even though i you know it, it didn't take long for alcohol to convince me that all that talk about it's being dangerous was over zealous <laughs> so don't believe the hype no no you know just listen to me i'll take care of you all right you know i always laugh i uh I bought into the first question that was ever asked in the Bible. I know you two are Bible scholars. <laughs> and, scholars. Uh, <laughs> you know what the first question in the Bible is? Satan says to Eve, 
You want to be like God? Yes. You want to be like God? Give me a few drinks, and mm-hmm. I'm going to feel like I am omnipotent wow. and omniscient and all these other wonderful things. God-like qualities. Right, that <laughs> deny the reality that I'm, uh, I'm heading toward, you know, desolation row, as Dylan mm-hmm. would say. So that was that was my my early days. So I didn't, uh, yeah, I've never heard that story before. But I didn't realize you were so poor. I mean, the first question I have is pretty practical: is did you always have enough to eat? Would you say? Well, my sainted Irish Catholic grandmother lived with us, oh. and she had a job, and she paid most of the bills. Wow. But we lived in a four <clears throat> four room what they call cold water flat. Mm-hmm. And uh she was at the end and I had a room and then there was the kitchen and my parents slept on a, a sleeping sofa in the other room. Huh. And so, you know, I don't remember being hungry. Um but I remember not having very nice clothes. I remember, you know, crummy sneakers that I wore till they fall, fell off, mm-hmm. uh, that type of thing. So, you know, that was, uh, but mostly it was, it was kind of the poverty of love. Yeah. This is really what it was. It was a poverty of love, a poverty of feeling safe. Mm. And this, um, you know, stuck with me for a long time. So, you know, I think there's worse types of poverty than financial. I do too. So you got out, uh, uh, you had these first drinks and what was high school or and or college? Talk a little about those oh, yeah. years a little bit. <clears throat> well, I was always a good athlete. Mm-hmm. And um, what'd you like to play? I was a basketball player. I was mm-hmm. a runner. I was a baseball player. Uh, and I did some boxing. Mm-hmm. I did some boxing. And this, um, because my parents were trying to make amends, they sent me to Stanford Catholic High School, where I went and all of a sudden, talk about not feeling that you fit in. I came from a very multi-racial, multi-ethnic background of, of kids, you know, who wore hand-me-downs forever into a private Catholic school with people, you know, kids were driving... Uh, their own cars at 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And boy, did I not fit in except for two things. One, I could, I was an athlete. And two, I was charming. <laughs> you, okay. were, really? you were charming. I was charming. Come on, this it wasn't you, you real. Got, you got to tell it the wasn't truth. real you charm. Tell the truth. It was, true. you know, <laughs> it, it. but it was manipulative charm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that got me in with the ladies, mm-hmm. and I never had problems with the ladies at all. And it got me playing sports. And But the problem was, we Stanford is within spitting distance of the New York line. And in New York, the drinking age was 18, and I always looked kind of older. Uh, so my father finally got me a car, and I would take the girls out and, you know, have fun, have a nice date, and I'd drop them off, and then I would drive to Porchester, New York, 20-minute ride, and I would sit in the bars in Porchester and drink, 
and feel more comfortable. And the dumpier the bar, the better I felt because it kind of matched my inside-outside type of mentality. Mm-hmm. And I, I got an interesting story. It might be in, one day I'm sitting in Vossen's Tavern, um, and famous place back then, mm-hmm. eating a roast beef sandwich. And all of a sudden, this guy comes up to the bar and sits next to me and he says, Hey, bloke, how are you? And I turn around, who the hell is this? It was some English guy. So he's drinking and I'm drinking and, I mean, we're drinking him down. This guy could drink, my type of fellow, mm-hmm. all right? Make a long story short, he gets up, up, got to go back to the show. It was Joe Cocker. Oh, no. I got plastered with Joe Cocker (laughs) (laughs) in this crummy bar in uh, Portchester, New York. Did you know who it was at the time? No, I did not. But But did you know who Joe Cocker was? I'd heard his music, but I had never seen him. Wow. Uh, because I don't know if they had videos back then. He was then. a strange-looking dude. Oh, he was. <laughs> and he was a character, and he was funny, and it was interesting. And mm-hmm. I met some very interesting people, you know, in, uh, when I went to college. I was a hippie in the 60s. Long hair. You wouldn't believe it now. But uh, I've never seen a picture. i got to see a picture oh, of goodness. you as a hippie. Yeah, I think I burned hair. most of them. <laughs> but uh, we had a lot of fun. And I used to go down to Greenwich Village a lot. Wow. With the hippies and walk around Washington Square and whatnot. Where'd you go to school? uh, I started out at Seton Hall. And we could just take the subway across the the river into uh, Mm -hmm. Washington Square. I knew New York. I know New York pretty well. I spent hours and hours, days and days in New York. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm sitting at the uh, bench. And who comes sitting down next to me but Allen Ginsberg. And we have this two-and-a-half-hour theological, philosophical talk that, you know, we're both what we used to call back then strunk, which was stone drunk. (laughs) And uh, I wish I could remember the conversation. (laughs) And eventually he got up and walked on, and I somehow ended up back in Jersey. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these are things that uh, is interesting. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't always fun. You know, one time I was studying for an exam. I wasn't a very good student because I only did, be a manipulator, only did what I had to do to get by or get what I wanted. So I was supposed to take a, a course in, I don't know, sociology or something. By now I had transferred to Southern Connecticut uh, because my father had died. That's a long, no, something else happened. But uh, anyway, I'm in Southern Connecticut studying for a, a test. My buddy calls me up and said, uh, you know, the Beast is in town. The Beast was the name of a guy we knew, big muscular guy, a friend of ours from college, came back from town. You want to go out? It's his birthday. No, I got to study. I got to study. I'm going to buy. Okay, I'm going. (laughs) (laughs) We go to the bar. We walk into the bar. I barely got up to the thing. And one of the problems with the Beast was he liked the girls, but he liked to pat him on the douche, okay? <laughs> Give him a little pat on the tush, see if there was any interest. So one day we go into uh, Elwood McGowan's bar with the Beast, and we walk in. We're not 20 feet in there, packed to the brim, past this beautiful blonde on the tush. The problem was the beautiful blonde was holding here hands with her gorilla boyfriend. <laughs> and, you know, all of a sudden we're in a barroom brawl. It is just horrid. 
The beast throws the gorilla through the plate glass window. The guy behind the bar takes out a pool cue. We end up in the street, okay? All of a sudden, the police come. I mean, half the police force in New Haven was there. It seemed like at the time. And we ended up right in front of the very first subway they ever had in, in America on, uh, in, near Whaley Avenue. But they're fighting, and all of a sudden, the beast knocks out a cop. Now we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Now we're in trouble. They throw him in the paddy wagon. I wanted to go and say something to him. They throw me in the paddy wagon. Just for spite, they mace the whole paddy wagon. Were you ever maced? No. Don't volunteer for it, believe <laughs> <Okay>. me. <laughs> they mace the inside of the paddy wagon. Another friend of mine comes in. They throw him in a paddy wagon. Okay? We're in the paddy wagon. We're going to the jail in New Haven. And John, the beast, is so strong... In the paddy wagon, they just have a two-by-eight nailed, uh, bolted to the floor. He rips the thing right out of the floor. The guys in the front, they have this little window. And a guy, new rookie cop, looks through the window and says, Oh, my God, what do I got here? We get to the, to the uh, police station. They open the door. We're coughing. We're furious. John's pounding on the, the back of the thing. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. He opens the door. I step out, and he puts his gun two inches from my nose and says, makes one effing move, and I'm going to kill you. I'm 19 years old. I was going to be studying for a sociology <laughs> test. Mm-hmm. How did I get into this situation? Mm-hmm. Because I didn't listen to my conscience. Yeah. I chose booze over what was right, and I almost died. And how many people we know who've died because they made the wrong decision? Okay. What happened to the beast? The beast died about 10 years after that. But did he, they... Oh, yeah, they threw him in jail. They beat the hell out of oh, all of us. Oh, my god. They gosh. beat him unmercifully and he got um disturbing the peace and assaulting an officer and spent some time in jail we got out the next day but the a, a funny addendum to this story fast forward 25 years i'm sober i'm a retreat director i'm doing a retreat in willimannic for people from new haven about 20 of them were cops i tell this story to them after the meeting was over, this guy walks up to me, and he says to me, I was there. I said, what? You were where? Because I just was one part of my whole spiel. Mm-hmm. He said, I was there that day. I remember that. I was a rookie cop, and they had a four-point bulletin that there was a riot going on at Elwood McGowan's, and I was there. I said, wow. You're my confirmation yeah. to not do this again, Right. to not do this again. Because once you pick up the first drink, all bets are off. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in every drink I ever took, I never realized that there was a consequence at the bottom of that drink, whether it was a beer or a mixed drink or whatnot. 
Mm -hmm. And you never know because alcohol doesn't tell you what that consequence will be. No, it could it be, hey, you know, maybe you'll get lucky tonight, Rick, mm -hmm. or you'll just have a good time. Or maybe you'll have a hangover mm -hmm. or maybe you'll have a cop, cop point a gun in your face mm -hmm. and threaten to kill you if you make one more move. And that's at the bottom of every drink. And no one knows what it's going to be. Mm -hmm. And that's why I haven't gone back. I don't need any more of consequences. So how did things progress? Hmm? How did things progress while you're at Southern and you survived this? Well, Southern, Southern was a blast. I, uh, you know, it was hippie times, uh, rock and roll, sex, love, rock and roll, all that type of stuff. And uh, the problem was that it was during uh, the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I ever won in my life was the lottery. You know, you're probably too young to be remember the no, lottery. No, I do remember it. But I, I won, you know, I had a great number in the lottery, and they told me that uh, we are inviting you to join the United States Army and go shoot people, you know, far, far away. And I said, nah, I don't think so. By this time, I had gotten married. I was uh, blessed by a beautiful girlfriend who became my wife, and... Uh, we got married, and I actually had a choice to go to Canada. I thought of maybe, you know, going off to Canada. But my father was in the service, and all my uncles were in the service. And there was some—I wasn't a patriot by any stretch of the imagination, but I did always believe in responsibility and the responsibility to the country. So instead of uh, getting drafted, I joined the Air Force. And— you know, God watches out for drunks and little children, my sponsor used to say. Mm -hmm. And when I was in uh, basic training and they were handing out assignments, two-thirds of my platoon got sent to Da Nang, Vietnam. And I went to Myrtle Beach. Mm -hmm. Myrtle Beach Air Force. Yep. And, uh, you know, no one attacked Myrtle Beach while Rick was on duty, I can tell you that. <laughs> but the interesting thing was... One time I came back from Myrtle Beach, and I loved the service because you could buy 75-cent uh, six-packs of beer in the military back then. And I bought a lot of them, and the NCO club. And, you know, it, it was just a, a great experience for me. I'm a big believer that uh, the service can turn someone around. Unfortunately, I was pretty much gone by then. I was a real, real drunk. But... Uh, <clears throat> Give you an example. My, uh, we went back to uh, Stanford one time when I was on leave, and my brother-in-law, who was an avid golfer, said to me, "Geez, how many golf courses did you play in Myrtle Beach?" And I looked at him in all seriousness, and I said, "I don't know they had golf courses in Myrtle Beach. I barely knew they had a beach in Myrtle Beach." Yeah, because with all this beauty, all these opportunity. Where was I? In a smoky NCO club getting wasted. Mm -hmm. And wasted was a, a hippie term. And, but it's the perfect description of what happens to an alcoholic. He gets wasted. We used and, to say that too. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, it, uh, it, was, it was a good time until my father died. And then I was able to get an honorable discharge out of the service, and uh, I ended up back in Stanford. 
And because of my ability to uh, talk and because of my English degree, I, uh, I talked myself into a Fortune 500 company job working for Clairol. I had a very big title, a very small paycheck, but a very big title, and access to cocktails at the Westchester Sheraton, Ooh. and down with Bristol Myers and the executives in New York City, and uh, all this type of phony baloney, and I would go there and play the game and, you know, for a while until I got bored with it and I'd make an excuse and then I'd go to Bobo's Tavern <laughs> because at Bobo's Tavern I felt like a big shot I walked in with my three-piece suit and all these bums were there and I'd buy a drink and all that stuff and always this disconnect between what I wished I was and what I feared I was mm. and that anxiety just really beer after beer after beer I'm mostly a beer alcoholic I was a wino also. I was one of the, you know, if I took stock in Boone's Farm Wine, I'd have made a fortune. Absolute fortune. That's Phil's first drink. Oh, my God. I love Boone's Farm. I used to carry two or three bottles at a time. It was only 99 cents when I started it. Mm -hmm. And I would have these old overcoats. And I would literally have two or three bottles of Boone's Farm apple wine. You yeah, know, when they, when they made strawberry, I thought I died and went to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it didn't take much to please you back then. No, no, I, I just went down, down, down. Mm -hmm. You know, it. Uh, I was a cheap, not a, I mean, I drank astronomical amounts of beer. I had a tremendous, I'm able to drink beer. But uh, things got worse. And yeah. that's what happens when you have an addiction. Things get worse. And if things don't get worse, you get worse. And mm -hmm. then you make things worse. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that... Uh, that's what happened. That's what happened through uh, high school and college. And uh, so anyway, I come back um, from uh, Myrtle Beach. I get out of the service. I get the Fortune 500 company job, and I feel like a total phony. Hmm. And that feeling was one of the few honest feelings I had because I was a phony. Because that's, again, what drinking and drugging does. It makes us phonies. It makes us liars. It makes us, you know, people that God did not make us to be, hmm. I believe. So, you know, I played, uh, I played the game with uh, Clairol for a while. And because I, uh, I, was, I was getting very sick mentally and emotionally, and I was causing great pain to my wife and to my family that, uh, you know, I figure I got to do something. I was going to move because that was the problem. Because I, I was very good with what I call the, the uh, alcoholic finger, okay? Most powerful finger on your hand. Because with this finger, I could blame you. I could blame you. I could blame you. I could blame God. Mm -hmm. Anybody but me. Mm -hmm. All right. Because then it, I became a coward. Addiction makes cowards of us all. So I decided, ah, I'm going to move. And I went from uh, a Fortune 500 company job. My next job was washing dishes for friendly ice cream in West Hartford. <laughs> And I've said many times that I was probably the most unfriendly person friendly <laughs> ice cream ever hired. Because by now I had this self-hatred. Yeah. 
And, you know, again, I would emanate this out uh, at other people. And, you know, it, it, it caused severe, severe problems, severe problems. I stayed with Friendly Ice Cream uh, as long as I could, and then I got a job at the Postal Service, which I almost lost in the first three months because my mind was so shot from booze and drugs that I couldn't memorize a sequence of numbers in streets. And by now, I'm drinking at uh, the crummiest bars you could possibly imagine, where the girls had tattoos and smoked cigars. And, mm. You know, <clears throat> it, it was horrible. At 27 years old, I was uh, considering suicide. I would drive home to uh, Vernon, and I'd have to go under the highway underpass, and it was hard for me not to drive my car into the abutment because I thought everyone would be better off without me. Mm. And, you know, one night I went home. My wife said, uh, my mother called, and we had to go to Stamford for something to see them. We were we had moved up to the Vernon area and we were going to go to Stanford for a visit for the weekend. And I said, oh God, because I had to go see the goddess of gloom and the apostle of pain. <laughs> That's what I called my in-laws. Uh, what they called me was probably a whole different story. So I went, uh, I went down there and I heard that they were some friend of a friend of a friend was having a party. Party meant free booze. So, you know, by now I'm old enough to buy my own booze. So I, I brought some and drank it all and drank some of yours and some of yours and anybody's I could steal. Uh, and my wife had asked me prior to going to the party, please don't get drunk. And I raised my phony right hand and said, I swear I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to get drunk, I said. I'm not going to get drunk. And at 11 o'clock, I'm wasted. I'm plastered. I can barely talk. And my wife came up to me, beautiful, short little woman that she is, and uh, she says, but you promised. And, and I huffed and puffed my big butt self up and got in her face and said, get out of my face. I could stop any damn time I want to. I just don't want to. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, something inside heard it, didn't hear it. I, I couldn't tell you today. But a voice said, that's a lie. Mm -hmm. Once you pick up the first drink or drug, you have no idea when you're going to stop. Mm -hmm. And that was my spiritual <coughs> experience, mm -hmm. that one moment of honesty and what had decayed into a lifetime of lies. I had to do something. So the next day, or a couple of days after that, uh, the post office had one of the original EAP programs. And I was one of the original members of the po program. Uh, I picked up my last drink on September 2nd, 1975. <laughs> Never thinking I'd still be sober. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, you know, that was it. And I went to the EAP program and they, they helped me. They taught me, they told me where to go and they taught me what to do and what not to do. Um, and I listened for the first time in my life, the old expression, I took the cotton out of my ears and I put it in my mouth. Mm -hmm. And back then the program was a rough place to be. 
And they said I should go to the Pathfinders Club, which was one of where all the, you know, denizens of the darkness <laughs> lived. And downstairs, I mean, you could hardly see two feet away because of the smoke. And uh, they couldn't care less about your feelings. Mm -hmm. They had an expression you may have heard, I'd rather uh, step on your toes than walk on your grave. Yeah. And they, they put it point blank, to drink is to die. To drink is to die, right out of the big book. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I bought in. I bought in. And, uh, you know, I wasn't too happy in the beginning. My wife certainly wasn't happy. She eventually went to her own program, the other fellowship for members of uh, drunks. And we, we, you know, would, I remember at, when the meetings would be over, we would hold hands. And I always thought, you know, we hold hands and we hold on. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why I hate this pandemic. We don't hold hands anymore. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I did it day by day. Day by day. So and in 1975, you were 27, 28 years old. Uh, just turned 27. Yeah, you're a pretty young guy. There, there weren't a lot of people pursuing recovery back then your age, were there? I was probably one of the youngest people, oh, within 50 miles of here. There were a couple, but I was, I was definitely one of the youngest. Yeah, I found recovery similar at, around the, at age 28. How old were you, Sandy? When? 26. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, what a great blessing to yeah. be able to live decades right. in recovery. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, and not come in. I think my father was 52 when mm -hmm. he sobered up. Uh, so, you know, that, that was a real blessing, but you go down to Pathfinders Club and these guys were so old. I mean, they were over 50, <laughs> you know. know, it was ridiculous how old these people were and they were all smoking themselves to death. Right. Of course I was smoking too, yeah. but, uh, you know, that's kind of where I met my sponsor, mm -hmm. which, uh, to this day, I say was one of the key things in my recovery. Mm -hmm. And he, he was a tough nut. We had nothing much in common except we couldn't pick up one drink safely. And we bought into this uh, program. And, uh, you know, he would, he would say some pretty tough things to me, you know. And I remember so many. One of them... I don't know if we could put this on podcast, but it's not too bad a story. But anyway, I'm, I'm <laughs> at the meeting, and uh, I, I'm sober about 10 or 12 months, and I said to him, you know, Dick, I, uh, I'm not sure I need to stay. I've read the book. I made coffee. I chaired a meeting. I spoke, all this other stuff, like it was a one-and-done type of thing. And he, he said to me, well, okay, Rick. Um, he said, well, let's, let's talk about this. He said, do you know who started the program? And uh, I said, yeah, a guy named Bill W. and Dr. Bob. He says, that's right. He says, do you know what kind of doctor Dr. Bob was? I said, yeah, I read the book. See, I'm educated alcoholic, the worst kind. And uh, he said he was a proctologist, I said. He says, you know what they do? I says, yeah, they fix assholes. Yeah. He says, you're in the right place, Rick. <laughs> you need to stay here. You need to do this. You need to work harder. And that was the key. Mm -hmm. I needed to work harder. Because mm -hmm. there's no magic fairy dust on these seats. 
Right. That you all you do is plop your butt in a chair and all of a sudden you're, you know, the second coming of whomever. You got to work at this. Mm -hmm. So I had to work at it. The steps weren't as big as they are today. I came in before they had step meetings, mm -hmm. before they had anything like that. No just book meetings at all. We all had a book, you know, and maybe one of us read it. But I did have the 24-hour book, which I have read diligently for, you know, all these years. And what that did was that gave me insight into the spirituality. Mm -hmm. I read the other literature, the insight into the spirituality. You know, I, uh, people, I had an anniversary one time, and someone says, how'd you do it? I said, God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. Mm -hmm. That's how I did it. Okay, I can't handle this by my. I could not stop drinking. Well, I shouldn't. I could stop drinking. I did it a thousand times. I couldn't stay stopped. Right. Without God's help and without other people's help, because they were the missionaries of God. You know, to a guy who was lost, totally lost. The other interesting thing about my life was the fact that. Uh, I had a child when I came in, and then we had another child shortly thereafter. And I thought, ah, this is wonderful. A recovery baby, okay? Mm. And we're going to grow up together, and everything is going to be wonderful. And about two and a half years into the program, maybe three, three years into the program, one day I came home, and my wife is frantic because our little baby... Um, you know, or no, let me rephrase that. I was on the phone, and she was crying in the other room. And I'm talking to another drunk trying to save him, because in three years we know everything, and we're going to mm -hmm. save the world here. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I say to God, who I'm just starting to acknowledge again, please make this kid shut up, okay, about... A minute later, she stopped crying. But she had stopped crying because she had stopped breathing. Now, I, I don't in any way assume that God caused this. I don't believe God works that way. But she had had a seizure. Mm. But I bring that up that even after three years of recovery, what a selfish thing to pray. Mm -hmm. Because the book says our primary problem is selfishness. Mm. Self will run riot. To make a long story short, I scooped the girl up. I humped the phone. I, I drove off. We went to the doctor. She was able to revive her. But when I came home, in the driveway was the fellow I was talking to. Mm -hmm. He cared. He cared. Mm-hmm. To me, one of the key words in all the steps is in the third step, care. Mm. Don't turn your only life over to God. Mm -hmm. I'll get you. Mm -hmm. Turn your only life over to the care of God. Mm -hmm. See, what alcoholism did to me and many others, it robbed me of the capacity to care. And once you lose your capacity to care, you're as low as you can get. Mm. So it was through the program and through the people and through the spirituality of the program 
that I was blessed with learning how to care again. Caring frightened me because there is responsibility to loving. Mm-hmm. So being an irresponsible, selfish drunk, I had to work on that pretty hard. However, that little girl, um, that wasn't a one and done. She became very, very sick and handicapped. And uh, so, you know, three, four years sober, I'm wondering when all the great things are going to happen now that I'm sober. And, but I, I did what they told me to do. And I kept trying. And unfortunately, when I was on my fifth anniversary, September 2nd, 1980, I had walked out of the bedroom. She had been very, very sick. And we had taken her to every doctor imaginable. And uh, I went into her bedroom and she was dead in her bed. And had a choice. Mm -hmm. Use it as a cheap excuse or call for help. That was a hard choice. But... I did what they told me to do. So I called, and they came. Hmm. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. It's what was her name, Rick? Leanna. Yeah, Leanna. Yeah, thank you. And didn't you tell me before that she had that condition that a movie was made about that? Lorenzo's yeah. Oil yeah, Lorenzo's movie. Oil. Yeah. That's what she had. And it was just, uh, if you know in the time, it was it was olive, a certain kind of olive oil, yeah. right? Would have made all the difference? Would have made all the difference. And uh, we oh. didn't know it at the time because no. Lorenzo was two years later. Yeah. Which is like, I spirit wishes about all that. Yeah, but, uh, you know, hundreds of people came. And uh, today I look at her life. Mm-hmm. as uh, teaching me about the love of God. I don't understand a lot of what's going on mm-hmm. uh, or what happened there. Why didn't my daughter, you know, we went to faith healers and priests and everything. And I realized that we, you know, everyone has uh, an alpha and omega. She had her five years and I learned more about spirituality through her and through other people who were praying for us in the program and in church and outside uh, than I ever had. And I learned that I was willing to go to any length. Hmm. And that was the key, you know, because I can't tell you how many people I know who have what I call an M problem. And I would tell them that, and they would look at me. I might have told you at one time. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, they would say, what's, what's an M problem? And I said, well, you're willing to go to many lengths. And the book says you got to get rid of the M, not many lengths, any length. Mm-hmm. And that's your choice, okay? Because once you put uh, uh, the bottle down, it's your choice how you want to look at life, how you want to learn, 
as long as you're willing to improve, my second favorite word mm-hmm. in uh, the steps. It doesn't say maintain. It says improve. Mm-hmm. And to this day, uh, when I do my 10th step at night to reflect on how I did that day, one of the questions I ask myself is, Rick, what'd you do today to improve your conscious contact with God as you understand him? Mm-hmm. And if I didn't do anything, I got to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. I haven't fulfilled my part of the deal. Mm-hmm. And the deal I made in the beginning, if I don't pick up the first drink or drug, will you give me the strength to handle everything else? That was the deal. Mm-hmm. And I'll do my part. And part of my part is to try to improve. Mm-hmm. So until they bury me, you know, I'll try to improve. And improving is in sharing. Yeah. So that's why I'm here. Yeah. You know, because mm-hmm. um, I love CCAR. I really do. I don't agree with everything about CCAR, but I love CCAR. I really, really do. You don't have to. No. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to agree. With that, with that comment, though, you know, as I've gotten to now work in the recovery community and paying attention to the recovery movement across the country, you know, I've really changed some of my thinking about a lot. And one of those things is the language that we choose to use and the concept or the, you know, the belief that um, addiction is a brain disease and using different language. And so one of the things that I've been teaching the community that I'm working with is to use language of recovery and moving away from some of the negative language. And I noticed that you use drunk a lot, and that's one of those words we're trying to move our ally community away from because of what it causes, even though, you know, for me personally, if I were to go to a um, 12-step meeting, I would identify myself as, hi, my name is Sandy, and I'm an alcoholic. But moving into that language, and I just wonder, you know, this far into your recovery and being exposed to the national recovery movement, if you're starting to change some of your philosophies about that. If I ever thought that my words or language would interfere with someone, I would change it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in basic training, we were all drunks, you know. Um, and so this is a way of me reminding myself mm-hmm. that I am one drink away from the gutter. Yeah. And I've seen this happen. Bill Wilson had an interesting comment just before he died. He said, uh, <clears throat> once you put the cork in the jug, everything else is a journey to humility. And this is one of the things. I'm an arrogant person by nature. I hate that, but that's the way I am. And... I have to work on this constantly. And calling myself a drunk just reminds me that if I were ever to pick up another drink, it'd be like spitting <coughs> in the face of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I take it that seriously. Yeah. Um, not, just, not just God, my friends, my family, my mm-hmm. grandchildren. Mm-hmm. You know, so, but I understand what you're saying, that... Uh, Words are blessings and curses. I am a writer, so I play with words all the time. Mm 
and I know how to twist them, manipulate them, elevate them, denigrate them, use them to make you happy or slaughter you in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful with our words. And I know so many people who have um, walked away because of irresponsible, what I call irresponsible semantics. Someone said something to them that offended them and they got outraged and they just said, I'm out of here. Who suffered in the long run? Mm -hmm. Okay, who suffered in the long run because some Yahoo said something stupid? Mm -hmm. And I understand where we can do this, but words are simply words. Watch actions. Watch how people live, even more than what they say. And I think that's the crucial part of it. Mm -hmm. You know, the the whole recovery, what I call the recovery empire, <laughs> is trying to be inclusive. And I think there's a positive thing for that. Um, but I, I, I think that if we become too oversensitive about what is being said or how it's being said, we miss the message. And to me, the message is, I can't, we can. I don't care what you say. I mean, I've dealt with tens of thousands of people easily mm -hmm. over the years. I've heard my words or read my books or whatever the case might be. If I had to worry about every word that I said, give me a beer. Mm -hmm. Hold my beer. But, but the thing is... You know, we have to be sensitive to it. So when I participate in CCAR, I try to change my language, mm -hmm. okay? When you ask me about my early life and my drinking experience, then I have to speak from my heart. Sure. And in my heart, I'm a drunk. But if I were going to, you know, like when we go to Florida, I, I try to be, I hate <laughs> the expression of person in recovery, I'm sorry, uh -huh. but... <clears throat> you know, sensitive. I think you have to be sensitive, but not oversensitive. Because alcoholics and drug addicts are pathetically oversensitive <laughs> uh, to so many different things. So that's my two cents take yeah. on that for what it's worth. Why don't you like the term person in recovery? It's too generic. Okay. It's too generic. It just, you know, it's not, to me, it's not real enough. I am, and it's not personal enough. Alcoholism is a personal, destructive, terminal illness. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's not attacking some person in recovery. It's attacking Rick Pacuconis for the purpose of destroying him and everyone he loves. Mm -hmm. So I need to make it very, very personal. That's just my my opinion, you know. Um, so, I I think um, when I'm in one situation, I'll call myself the drunk, the alcoholic, the cocaine addict, whatever it might be, uh, and that has a certain stigmatizing language in the general public. So when we say person in recovery, it also talks about the idea that you can recover from that illness. <clears throat> if I say, if I was everywhere saying my name is Phil, I'm an, an alcoholic, most people think I'm still drinking. 
You so know? that's the reasoning, and I'm not disagreeing with that. Just uh, the other. I side I, of that. I agree. Mm-hmm. When when you were in your yeah. milieu, as they say, <laughs> yeah. um, I agree with that, yeah. and I would hope that you would continue that. Yeah. And I understand the all embracing mm-hmm. of this type of thing using that type of right. generic language. I'm all for that. Gotcha. Uh, you know, it's just. Be sensitive to where you are and who is there. Oh, yeah. Now, I'm not talking about you, but I'm talking about anyone mm-hmm. to do this. If you're a drug addict and you're an alcoholic and you go to a meeting for alcoholics, talk about your alcoholism. I agree. Okay? Talk about your alcoholism and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And that's my own thing. I do like what you said about being pathetically sensitive, though. I mean, a lot of times we are tiptoeing around so many issues when it's just, be straight. I mean, you're very much the same way. You want to be very, you're very direct. And the more direct we can be, the better, oftentimes. I'm direct, but I'm waiting. I'm like, there's like, sooner or later, that's going to get me. But well, I can live with it because a lack of honesty, I have never seen help anybody. Let me, let me tell you this little fantasy I have. You know, I'm getting older, so I don't have too many years left. <laughs> but... Uh, I, I, and I used to tell this on the retreats when I would be doing the retreats, for especially the older guys and some of the younger, smart, tough guys. <laughs> I would say, imagine this. I say, honesty is the, the key number one principle in all of recovery, no matter what you're fighting. Okay. Matter of fact, it's so important that the number one is in the word honest. Mm-hmm. But imagine you should die. Okay. And you go up to heaven. And you go up to God after you've been sober a period of time and you've done all these good things and you're before God or before St. Peter. (laughs) And you say, here I am. And St. Peter looks at you and says, who are you? Wait a minute. Don't you know who I am? You know, I was the president of CCAR and I was his wife and I did this (laughs) and I did that and all these things and I went to church. Don't you know who I am? And he said, I'm sorry you can't come in here. I know who you are, but you really don't know who you are yet. Go back and find out who you really, truly are. And then you'll be eligible to come into heaven. Because only the real get into the celestial. And that's just something that kind of struck me. And that's what the steps are for. That's what CCAR is for. That's what all these things are for, to become real. Because real is okay. You're okay to be real, whether you're, you know, gentle or rough or whatnot. Just be real. Mm-hmm. You know, people, yourself included, have always said, you know, you're a tough guy. You say some tough things. I've never said anything to anybody that they rejected because at least when they knew that I cared about them, that mm-hmm. I cared about you. So I'm going to tell you, don't be a jerk, okay? You got to change. Well, that doesn't sound too kind, but it's real and it's caring. And caring is the kindest thing you can do. Mm-hmm. I'm still contemplating passing and going up and talking to God and him saying that to me. <laughs> but it's only a story. 
It's only a, a story. Uh huh. You always have meaning behind your story. I want to jump back a little bit. Uh, so, on your fifth anniversary, sober anniversary, mm-hmm. a child passed away. But then we have another little story about your next child. Ah, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. God forbid I should forget this. <laughs> no, but that. Uh, Leanna was dying. Mm-hmm. We knew that she was dying in front of our eyes. There was nothing I could do except stay sober and try to live a spiritual life. And it was killing me every day. But all of a sudden, uh, my wife said to me, uh, I'm pregnant. I said, what? What? <laughs> you know. Uh, and so we, we went down... We had to go down to the head geneticist of Yale University to get a diagnosis. I had seven wrong diagnoses on my daughter, Leanna. And I, we had to go down to Yale and uh, talk to them. This is an interesting story, too. We, we bring Leanna down to the geneticist at Yale. She had to spend two days. I was a wreck. I had never left her alone since she got sick. So we put her in there, and I, I'm praying, God, Send someone to watch over her while she's there. We go back. I can't sleep that night in a hotel. We're staying in New Haven. The next day I wake up. I said to my wife, I'm a wreck. I got to go to the meeting in New Haven at the 12-step club. I go up there. I go up to the 12-step club. I blurt out my anxiety, my fear, whatnot, the whole thing. And after the meeting was over, this beautiful, tall, blonde woman comes up and taps me on the shoulder. And I turn around and say, yes. And she goes, was your name, was your daughter's name Leanna? What, are you kidding? Yeah. How do you know that? (laughs) (laughs) She said, I was her nurse (laughs) last night in the pediatric care section. I'll take good care of her. Mm -hmm. And her head geneticist finally told us what was wrong, that she only had a few months to live. And we left. But I never forget Judy. So anyway... We're pregnant. Time's going on. We uh, we have the baby. Leanne is very, very ill. Very ill. We're so upset we can't agree on a name. We're in uh, the hospital, and there's a problem. The doctor comes to us. We have a problem with the new child. And she had a heart palpitation. And we didn't know what to do. So she was baptized in a neonatal unit. Meanwhile, I got one dying. What is that neonatal unit? What do you do? So my wife and I finally said, you know what? We got to come up with a name for this kid. And we came up with the only name that fit the only thing we had going for us at the time. Hope. We named her Hope. And the funny thing was, the head geneticist at Yale, when she found out when my wife was pregnant, he was, um, I don't know, whatever he was, but 
he said to me, you might want to consider an abortion because mm. I can't guarantee that the third child won't have the same um, cerebral uh, problem that she died of a, a cerebral issue as this one. But um, abortion was not part of our religious heritage. So we said no. And I'm so grateful for that because even though hope was uh ill in the first few days they were able to get her out of it and give her dig oxygen or digoxin and she became the smartest one in the family <laughs> yeah and we saw her um just a month ago she moved up to canada mm -hmm. with her grandchildren my uh -huh, yeah. grandchildren yeah i had a choice that day what if i had chose not to trust god because it all comes down to you either play God in the delusions of drinking or you trust God even through the anxiety of sobriety. So fortunately, with all the people, we trusted God and hope prevailed. Well, that's the other one. Amen. Wow. 45 years of recovery, Rick. What else is it you'd like us to know? Do you have any thoughts about recovery? Yeah, yeah. Um, just to wrap this up, and thank you for allowing me oh, to be here. It's oh, our privilege. And thank you for your skills. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. uh, I've never seen so many cameras. <laughs> yeah. But, and, and this is a great ministry, and you've done wonders for here. I brag about you all the time. Uh, Just not to me, right? I know. <laughs> no, I not like, to you, no, no. <laughs> not to you. But, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing is that you get, um, I'm almost 73, and I've had, I've been retired a long time, and I've had bucket lists. You know, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to go here, there, and everything. And I've crossed so many things off my bucket list that, you know, I have to kind of be creative. You know, I've written books and I've, I've spoken in big venues and just wonderful life I've had uh, because of sobriety. But there's one thing that I think my wife is going to have to cross off the list. Basically, however long I have left, is my last thing on the list is I want to die an honorable man. Yeah. That's it. Mm -hmm. um, and the way to guarantee that is I have to try to continue to live an honorable life. Mm -hmm. God-centered. Um, continue to be willing to help people. You know... Um, it's not as easy as it used to be, but I love the line in Scripture, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God mm -hmm. in Romans. And this is my thing. Coming here, I have the hope that God may touch somebody because of my, you know, mm -hmm. words. Um, and in so doing, I learn more about myself, mm. still learning about myself, I, I try to stay, say thank you 
because living sober is my way of being grateful mm-hmm. to God and to my wife and to my family, you know, um, and I want them to be proud of me. So I want to die an honorable man. Mm-hmm. And if it's today or a thousand years from today, if I don't pick up the first drink today and I say my prayers and I try to do sometimes what I even don't want to do, <laughs> I got a shot. I got a shot. And that's all you can ask mm-hmm. for a drunk. Excuse my language. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rick. If uh, people wanted to uh, get their hands on a book, where's the best place to get it? Well, I publish my own books. It's, it, there's a publishing company called Lulu.com. Yeah. And I published them uh, under the name Richard Anthony. Okay. Which is my name, my middle name, my father's name. And uh, all they are little books. Um, I wrote little books because I dealt with alcoholics who didn't read big books. <laughs> so they read little books. So I would write these things in little books, and I write proverbs. And I also have two, uh, two little sites on Facebook. One is Richard Anthony Pacuconis. I write one of my proverbs every day. And I also have a site on Facebook called The Recovery Series which I try to offer little tidbits of experience over the almost 46 years of trying to walk this uh, path. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if they help, thank you. Um, Take what you need and leave the rest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, keep praying for me. Because at night when I say my prayers, I pray for everyone who may have listened to my words or read my words today Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, it might, people. it might be a blessing. There was a time early, um, I think we were just starting our relationship and I was getting uh, divorced. And I was waxing eloquent at one of these meetings that you were in, Rick. And um, didn't really know you all that well. I think you had, uh, I don't know, uh, 10, 12 years of recovery. And I was just starting. And after the meeting, you came up to me, and you were angry. And I thought you might congratulate me or something. And you stuck your finger, that finger right in my face and said, you can get bitter or you can get better. The choice is yours. And you walked away. And I probably came back, came and told you that story. And you probably got a little angry at Rick, too. That's my initial reaction. <laughs> right. And... That has served me so well in the 33 years plus. So thank you for caring enough to tell me the truth and, and pose two viable options. You know, th- those were the two viable options I had right then and there. We fast forward to when I was on the trail and I was thinking of pondering quitting and you left me a voicemail and you said, you only have two noble options left. Either finish this thing or die trying. <laughs> and I read that, my heart warmed up. And I just laughed and said, well, those are the two options, I guess, in your mind. Other people see that and go, that's not very kind or that's not very caring. Yeah, I got all kinds of grief for making you wait 10 minutes to quit. I know. And he's like, you know, either finish or die trying. And that was just some of the motivation I needed at, 
needed. I think what our relationship also demonstrates to me, and which is really amazing in communities of recovery, in 12-step fellowship, is we all stand on the shoulders of the people that came before us. So I just want to thank you um, for letting me stand on your shoulders. It's meant the world to me, and indirectly it's meant a lot to this entire, to CCAR. Uh, so you're, you know, you're foundational to what has happened here. So just uh, thank you for all that. Thank you for being here, and I'm mm -hmm. proud of both of you mm -hmm. for what it's worth. Mm -hmm. God bless you. Thanks, Rick. And what you always like to say, you said in a breakfast at the Cosmic Omelet a few years ago now, that has, you know, as we get older and our bodies might fail and... Uh, I see, you know, dealing with parents and things like that is we have to believe that the best is yet to come. Amen. Mm -hmm. Amen. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Recovery Matters podcast. We hope that you have connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us. Like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at CCAR, the number four, Recovery. And on Instagram at Recovery Matters Podcast. And you can use the hashtag RecoveryFirst to show support for our mission. Have questions, comments, feedback? Email us at podcast at ccar.us. Fire feeds fire. So if yours is burning right now, reach out and share it with someone.